Listener Production. Okay, are you recording? Howdy, welcome along to episode 46 of the Howie Games. Hope you're having a wonderful day wherever in the world you may be. If you could do the show a favour, please, that'd be great. Just tell one person, one person about our little show. If need be, even show them how to listen or download it. That'd be super cool. Thanks. Alrighty, this week it is quite an episode. We're going old school, real old school Formula One. I get a lot of requests at MarkHoward03 on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, not Snapchat. We're not on Snapchat yet. About getting on Lewis Hamilton and Dan. Ricardo, trust me, we are trying. Obviously, long-time listeners of the show will no doubt remember when we sent old mate MJ to Singapore to try and sign up Lewis. MJ has since admitted he embarrassed himself and the show, didn't you, MJ? Well, I, th- I think we've lost the audio, MJ, you embarrassed yourself. You embarrassed the show. You didn't get Lewis, did you? No. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't, and fair to say the big penguin gave it to you with both barrels, and fair enough too. No, we've lost that audio. No, we haven't. Roll it. (laughs) Let's see how he went. Lewis. Lewis. MJ here from Australia. Good luck on the weekend. Lewis. Lewis. MJ from Australia. What a bloody turkey pickle. That type of gear is bad for our brand, Pengy. So, in the meantime, while we're still trying to chase down Lewis, we present to you a man not concerned with false platitudes, corporate speak or towing the line like many in Formula One do. This is the 1980 Formula One world champion Alan Jones, a man's man who says it exactly how he sees it. Alan has recently released a book called AJ, How Alan Jones Climbed to the Top of Formula One. It is a great read. It's direct, entertaining, eyebrow-raising, controversial, and most of all, which I really enjoyed about it, it is honest, very honest, just like this episode. This is the story of a boy who grew up in Melbourne where he started driving without a licence who dreamed of taking on the best races on the planet. Without money or any form of pathway, AJ not only took on the best of Formula One, he beat them, earning a world title in a time when the sport was gung-ho, terribly dangerous and very, very loose. I've had the pleasure of working with Alan over many years now at the Australian Grand Prix on Network 10's coverage. There's a tremendous amount of love and respect for AJ in the paddock. No door is closed to him, and even if it was, he would just bash it down anyway. That's the type of cat he is. Alan Jones, in some ways, is what we romanticise about when we think about racing car drivers. Fast, flamboyant and fearless in both action and words. Enjoy the loose cannon that is Alan Jones. So when you search and then you find And know just where to go And thoughts that once used to cloud your mind You see clearly and now you know Mystery, what is to be Revealed in King Selassie I Come on children, try it with me we want to reach Mount Zion. Alan Jones, welcome to the Howie Games. We're about to go and do an F1 race. After I read your book, AJ, How Alan Jones Climbed to the Top of the World, I've been looking forward to this. Congratulations on your book, mate. It is the most honest, entertaining sports book I reckon I've ever written. Great to have a chat with you. Oh, well, thank you very much. I appreciate it. I mean, at the end of the day, I'm... People said to me, AJ, you, you you did a book before, which I did in about 1980. What prompted you to do another one? And yep. I said, well, there's been a lot of water under the bridge since then, obviously, and um, I can probably say a few things now that I <laughs> held back a little bit in 1980 yes. for fear of bumping into people. Yes. Um, but, you know, if I think if you're going to do a book or tell a story, yep. if you're going to do a biography, 
There's no point just saying I passed this guy on corner three and we did this and all that sort of... I mean, people want a bit of an insight on your life and what you did and how you did it and what it took to, to go overseas and get into Formula One and, and, and some of the anecdotes along the way and I think that's what makes it interesting. It is, uh, and I was just mentioning to you, we're in the hotel here, we're about to go and do the the Singapore Grand Prix. I texted Adam Gilchrist because, you know, he's worked on the F1 with us the last three years. He's become a bit of a tragic. Well, he is. He loves it. So I texted him saying, have you read AJ's book? 30 seconds later, he rang me back. He said, where are you up to? And we started quoting paragraphs to each other. So, mate, it's... It's so honest. It's made me laugh at various times, the terminology you use. It's like it's winding back 30 years in the approach to life, but in a modern format, it's just so honest and entertaining. And whether you're having a go at someone else or yourself, you don't hold back. I loved it. I really, really loved it. Well, I mean, I guess, why should you? Yeah. I mean, I didn't do the book to hold back. Mm. I did the book to tell some stories, and and that's, that's the way I talk. And I tried to make it as if I was down the pub with some mates and telling a few stories and, and recounting a few experiences and some of which I've got to tell you I've left out. <laughs> not all of which could have gone in the book. Well, there's not many that didn't, <laughs> I don't reckon. Um, but, you know, I, I mean, I just wanted it to be in, informative and entertaining. And it is. So if, if you don't mind, if we could spend 45 or 50 minutes just, just chatting about you and your life. And yeah. I've had the pleasure of working with you for the last three or four years and I, I call it a pleasure on the F1, but I had no idea about some of the stuff that happened in Formula One in the 70s and 80s. So it was a massive eye-opener for me. Firstly, I, I didn't even know you were a Melbourne bloke. You, you grew up in Melbourne. Yeah, born and bred, born in Richmond. Yep. Um, grew up in Baldwin a lot of, the, lot of my life and then for, for the rest of it in East Ivanhoe on the boulevard. And then, then, of course, I went over to England because if you wanted to get anywhere in motorsport, you had to go to England and that's where I went. And then um, after that, I came back and uh, I bought a farm up at Glenburn, which is halfway between Yarra Glen and Yay, mm. and, and a house in Kew. How were you as a farmer? Uh, shocking. <laughs> um, and also the first uh, winter, the first Melbourne weather, I said, come back London, all is forgiven. <laughs> um, you know, I thought... I'd, um, but, you know, and then, as I said in the book, I think, you know, on the farm, you know, the manager would come and wake me up in the middle of the night, be bloody freezing, and he'd say, the fox is out there. I said, so what? Let him have a few. You know, like, I'm not getting out of bed. And he said, what sort of a farm are you? I said, well, I'm not, <laughs> obviously. I enjoyed the stories of being a gentleman farmer. So as a young man growing up in Melbourne, where are you going to school? Were you any good at school? No, no. No, I wasn't an academic. I went to Xavier. Right, well, fancy school. Um, yeah, sort of. And, <laughs> and um, I think I, I I brought that up in the book as well, how um, uh, it sort of, not not Xavier, but certain things have turned me off Catholicism. Yeah. Um, you know, I think when Father Brown belted the shit out of me for not knowing why Jesus was kind and gentle, I sort of put a bit of a question mark. <laughs> I thought, hang on, this is God's representative on earth bashing me up. <laughs> was but, it was but, it that brutal? Is it, so we're talking the <clears throat> 19... 50s, are we? We're talking probably late 50s, yeah. So it was that brutal in Catholic schools then? Well, yeah, I mean, you know, Melbourne winter, you'd go, I went to Burke Hall, which was the junior school before going up to the senior school in Kew, and they were Jesuits and, and they were hard buggers, you know. I mean, yep. they used to carry straps in, for want of a better word, was a shoulder holster. Wow. And um, these things were about, I don't know how long, but they even had, like, um, steel in, in the middle of the um, leather and then they used to soak it in vinegar just to give it a bit more wizzo. <laughs> a bit <laughs> and, more wizzo. And then uh, they'd give you anywhere from two, four or six of the best. And six of the best in a Melbourne winter, 
uh, let me tell you, it's not real pleasant. So um, we all had to try and judge it in such a way that we pulled our hand away at the time the strap hit the palm. But if you did it too soon and he twigged, he'd he'd do it again. So you had to get your timing. In fact, he probably helped me with my judgment a bit in my motor racing. (laughs) Your reflexes, (laughs) Josie. Obviously... uh, uh, it's an interesting sport to get in with because typically it takes money or talent or both, motor racing. You had a connection with your dad and, again, through my ignorance, I didn't understand how good it, he was at, at driving a car. This is where your passion came from? Oh, absolutely. I mean, at the end of the day, I often wonder how other people get into motorsport. Yeah. You know, I mean, how does the butcher or the candlestick maker's kid get into motorsport? I grew up with it. I went to the races with Dad. I flew to New Zealand with him. Um, I, I went all around Australia at the various races that he went to. Stan? Uh, yeah. Uh, he was the first Australian ever to win a Grand Prix outside of Australia, albeit the New Zealand one. Um, he won the Australian Grand Prix. I th- we're still the only father and son to have ever won the Australian Grand Prix. Um, so I, I grew up ever since I was knee-high to a grasshopper in that sort of atmosphere. And, you know, I, I wanted to be a racing car driver ever since I can remember. I don't even remember waking up and saying, I think I'd like to race cars. That's just what I, what I thought I was meant to do. And what was it about the sport? Can you take yourself back to as a, a six or seven or eight or nine-year-old? What was it that really gripped you? Well, I mean, I started off in billy carts going down the hill in Baldwin <laughs> with ball bearings as, as wheels and tyres, and then I graduated up into go-karts and, and then from go-karts... Um, you know, into into, into uh, like the old man's old Cooper Climax and, um, you know, that's all I wanted to do. I just wanted to race cars. I didn't even realise um, at that stage, um, I didn't even think about the money that could be earned. I didn't think to myself, I'll get over there and if I'm successful, I'll make a lot of money. If, to, to me, I just wanted to race cars and beat people. It was the competitiveness of it all. Um, but, yeah, that's that's how it all happened. I mentioned your book again, How Alan James Climbed to the Top of Formula One and how it's brutally honest. And it is a very different age we live in now. Page two of your book, I think you actually used the term dad used to biff mum a little bit. And as soon as I read that, I thought, Jesus, this is an honest account of, of your well, life. Well, he did. You know, and there's no point um, colouring over it. Yeah. I mean, you know, no point saying dad was a priest and mum was a nun and everything was honky-dory. It wasn't. I mean, they used to have shocking blues. Um you know, she was um, a real fiery, red-headed Irish descent and, um, you know, they'd get on the uh, the laughing juice and she'd rev him up something shocking and he mm. had a bad temper and, um, yeah, he used to give her a biff, you know, which um, really concerned me, obviously. Yeah. You know, when you're a young boy and you, you see your mum, you know, with blood, bloody nose or whatever, um, you know, it's a bit upsetting. So that's what happened and that's that's... That's what I say. And you do say that. You, you actually make a point, and I know you well enough to know you're not into sympathy or any of those terms. I don't even know what the best terms to use are, but, you know, you say in the book you didn't enjoy it, but it was Well, just I don't know. If there's some pretty young ladies out there, I might need some therapy. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, we'll get to that in the book as well. There's plenty of therapy in the book. But it's not like you were saying this is something that affected me for the rest of my life. No. It was just that was what was happening in your house. And I think it was happening in a lot of houses at that time. And you know what? I think it happens in a lot of houses right now. Yeah. Um, you know, you know, we've it's just come to the head a lot more. You know, we hear Thankfully. about... Thankfully. Yeah, well, absolutely. You know, we, we hear about family violence and... But now, you know, women take out AVOs and I think uh, men are a lot more aware of that situation and, and uh, you know, I don't think as much of it goes on. Well, I hope it doesn't anyway, but, um, you know, it, it went on and... Uh, 
you know, I went to England and, and the silly part, what, what probably helped a little bit is that once they got divorced, they became the best of mates. Your mum and dad? Yeah. Right. And uh, she remarried a guy, obviously, and um, we, we used to go around to their place for Sunday lunch, you know, and uh, Wally, who... W- with your dad? Yeah. At, to your mum's with a new fella? Yep. Was that not a bit awkward or...? No, no, it wasn't. I just thought it was you know, normal, and right. she gave birth to a, a, a son, Glenn, mm-hmm. and um, so your half brother, brother okay. and uh, yeah, and we used to just go around there, and Dad have a few beers with Wally, and I'd have a few beers, and we'd have a nice big Sunday lunch because she was a good cook, mm. and uh, and that was it basically. And I think that's probably, um, well, how shall I say, sort of. Help me a little bit, you know. Not that I needed help. I mean, I, I, I mean, I wasn't affected by it. I don't believe some mm. people both say I was, but um, I, you know, I think that probably smoothed a, th- a few things over for me. When did you first get in a car? Not on a racetrack. Uh, when did you first get in a car? I had the pleasure of doing one of these with Mark Webber, and he was, I reckon, on his L plates driving by himself. I'm not sure you probably even had L plates when you first started to jump in. I car. didn't even have a license. Right. I started driving. <laughs> what is it with I, you bikes and your cars? I started driving when I was 15. Right. In Melbourne, when you had to be 18. <laughs> what were you driving around in? Well, the old man bought a Morris Minor convertible and painted the most shocking iridescent green with gold <laughs> interior and gold wheels. I mean, honestly. I mean, he he obviously thought it was pretty good. I was I, I couldn't get out of it quick enough. I hated it. Um, but I was driving that at 15, and then the minute I turned 16, I went to South Australia and used a mate of the old man's address over there. I never forget. It's 18 Kitchen Avenue, Dulwich, and I got a South Australian license. Oh, because you could get them younger, could you? And I, you can get them at six. Well, you, you used to be able to get them at 16. I don't know whether you still can or not in in Adelaide. And then I drove, and then uh, t- as soon as I turned 17, I went up to New South Wales, and um, I, a, a very good friend of my father's was a guy called Laurie O'Neill, and mm. um, he, um, he he had an address or gave an address out at Five Docks, so I got a New South Wales <laughs> licence. And then when I turned 18, I ended up by getting a Victorian licence, and that went what bloody first time I ever got pulled up. <laughs> once you are all legit. Yeah, once I was all legit. <laughs> once you're all, yeah. So as a 16-year-old, you were, what, fanging around Melbourne, unlicensed? Absolutely, yeah. Right. Oh, 15, I think. 15? Yeah. Where were you off to? Anywhere. Anywhere that car would take me. I mean, at the, uh, I'd, um, you know, I'd, I'd just drive where I wanted to drive, basically. And, um, I mean, I was driving around before I went to South Australia to get my licence. When did you first start racing cars? What, what were your first racing competitively? My very first race ever was at the Geelong Sprints. The Geelong Sprints? In a, in a, in a mini along the foreshore there. Yep. And uh, that was my very first competitive outing in in a in a car in, how, in a race. How'd you go? Um, I think all right. I, I mean, it was so, so long ago. I forget to mm. be honest, but um, it was a good little car. I mean, uh, we bought it from a repo yard with the engine in the boot and gave it to a guy called Brian Simpson to to put it all back together and hot it all up and make it into a a good little touring car. There's a photograph of it in the book. Um, and then I started racing it uh, at places like Hume Weir, which no longer exist anymore, Calder, uh, a few of those sort of places. All the hot spots. Yeah. And what was your relationship with your dad here? Was he, a, was he doing really well, mate? Was he full of encouragement or was he the opposite of that? How did that go? Because obviously you're trying to live up to him at this stage. He's pretty accomplished in the field. Yeah, I mean, look, he, he, he gave me what I needed to have to go motorsport. But he certainly wasn't the sort of baseball father that would come out and give you encouragement and advice and sit down with you. I mean, he used to abuse me if I did anything wrong. And then if I did anything right, he'd think, oh, well, so you should, you know, uh, (laughs) basically. So he 
you know, he was he was the sort of guy that the Melbourne show, for instance, he'd give his, he'd give his secretary 50 quid and tell her to take me to the show and buy me some bags. He, he was that sort of it. Like, okay. I know he loved me and he gave me everything and I wanted for nothing. Yep. But he, he certainly wasn't a hands-on dad as such. Have you been different with your own kids? Have you attempted to be different with your own kids? Well, yeah, I mean, I've endeavoured to, obviously, because I'm an older father now. I've remarried a, a younger girl, Amanda. You had twi- twins at... And I've got twins, a boy and a girl. At what age was that? Uh, I was uh, 49 or 50 when I when I, when I I had them. We're skipping ahead now, but yeah. what, how'd that use go over as a 50-year-old? you got twins on the way. Well, I remember no names, no pack drill, but a mate of mine said, Jesus, what are you doing having kids at your age, you silly old bugger? <laughs> And I said, well, Bob, it wasn't exactly planned. I mean, it's just it happened, you yep. know. But anyway, guess what? The same bloke now who's three years older than me has got four kids under 12. There you go. Good luck to him. <laughs> so do you reckon I don't go back? Do you reckon that doesn't, I don't use that back at him? So you're racing in Geelong. Obviously, you start to progress. At what stage does it become apparent to you that maybe you're better than the majority of the people you're racing against and that? Maybe I can make something of this car racing caper. Well, with the risk of sounding big-headed, I yep. mean, I thought that before I even put my bum in the car. Did I mean, you, you, you know, you, I'm a great believer. I mean, there's a difference between arrogance and confidence. You know, I, I always were of the opinion that give me the same equipment as anybody else and I'll beat them. If you don't think that way, don't go. You know, you've got to be competitive. You've got to be able to do whatever it takes to win and you've got to have this undeniable self-belief um, that you are as good, if not better, than anybody. And I've always thought that. So you progress through... And that sounds arrogant, I know, but that's that's just the way I was. It's funny that the more of these you do, that you realise the inner belief becomes... The more of these sports people you chat to, the more you realise that the inner belief is... Well, you're the only one who does because, I mean, it, yeah. I mean at the end of the day, uh, particularly if you go across to England, um, there's no one to turn to. You can't go down to Mum's for a roast on a Sunday. She's 12,000 miles away. Mm. Um, you've got to have belief in yourself and you've got to keep on hopping up from the knocks. Uh, otherwise, you knock it on the head and come home. And one of the best pieces of advice my father ever gave me was, get over there, give it a go. Uh, if, you don't go in, if you don't go any good, you can always come back. Australia's not going anywhere. It'd still be here. He was offered actually a works BRM and Ferrari test after he won the New Zealand Grand Prix. You did? Yeah, he beat the Ferrari, beat BRM. He turned it down and to his dying day, he always used to wonder what, what would have happened if he would have gone over and taken up that. But he had a very um, young Holden dealership out in Essendon and he had a young family and I guess he thought that was more important than going to the other side of the world to uh, have a go at motor racing. But you reckon from then on the rest of his life he was a bit of what Well, I'm sure he used to sort of look back and think what what if and... You know, he always said, "Take the if you can lay on your deathbed, the more question marks you can scrub out, the better." <laughs> and that goes for a lot of things. Mm. Yeah, I don't reckon you've left too many question marks at this point. <clears throat> so, when do you first leave Australia to go to England? What year? I think 1967. I think at, I, at age oh, 19 or something. So, or, how do you get there? I went over on the ship. How long did that take? Oh, I don't know, a month or something, five weeks. How many cans a day? Oh, plenty. Um, <laughs> plenty. Well, I tell you what, I, you know, the things you look back on, I remember sort of walking on the, um, on the uh, what are the, the things that go around the side of a ship, the uh, the railing. Right. You know, like, I mean, one slip, that was, you know, that was the end of L. He, he was gone. <laughs> but, of right. course, you know, at that age, you're stupid, bulletproof, you know. So, anyway, we, 
went over to England and bought an old dormer and toured toured around the continent, you know, as Aussies used to do in those days, staying in the camping areas, going to the various races. Was it just brilliant? Oh, it was fabulous. I had an absolute ball, you know, and Dad was going to send me money over to keep me going, which he failed to do on several occasions, <laughs> and I ended up in bloody Madrid for a week without any money. I booked into a hotel thinking, oh, well, I'll get room service or I'll eat at the restaurant, and then I found out they only did continental breakfasts. <laughs> And then I got to the stage where I didn't have them because I used to try and sleep in as long as I could to make the day shorter. Because you had no money. Because I had no money because I had to do the <laughs> trek down to uh, Thomas, whatever it was in those days. Um, to see if the old man had come through. To see if the, the money had come through. And then as soon as the money came through, I jumped on a train and whizzed down to, I think it was Barcelona, and met up with the people that I was with and then continued on the trip. But, um, you know, and, and those sort of things, to say a, a character building, <laughs> are mm. a bit of an understatement. So you get to the UK and I, I really enjoyed reading about the various ways you're making money, Jonesy. Mm. I, I, entrepreneurial, to say the least. Yeah, well, I mean, at the end of the day, I work for my father selling cars. So, you know, I've, I've always had an involvement with cars one way or another. And um, I went over there with my, one of my best mates, a guy called Brian Maguire, whose father was my dad's spare parts manager at the Holden dealership. Mm-hmm. And we started buying and selling minivans and dormobiles, you know, to poor unsuspecting Australian... A, d- a dormobile. A dormobile is uh, like an old Bedford van. Okay. So you can uh, sleep in the back if you Ideally, would... the roof pops up and they've got bunks there, but... Uh, more than likely the ones we were selling just were normal vans with side windows with sleeping bags in the back and an old primer stove or something. Um, and that's what we were doing. We were buying and selling them. and uh, To people that were going off on a similar trip to you, Dan? People that were coming to England and going off to, uh, to, 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 to Europe, the continent, and then coming back and uh, we'd buy them back from them, you know, on the basis that uh, when you come back, my sister's coming over, she'd probably look, you know, she wants something like this and we'll definitely buy this back, you know, and, of course, half half the silly people would leave it until the day before they were flying out and pull up and say, right, I'm back. Oh, well, you know, she's not coming now, you know, <laughs> blah, blah, blah. So we'd end up by buying it back for about a quarter of what we sold it for and then take it straight back down to Will's Court and sell it for the original, the original price. But Brian and I were making really good money, like, you know... It, in those days, we were making about a thousand quid a week each, selling and buying back these buying vans. and buying and selling minivans. I mean, that was a heap of money, you know, for a young bloke, and and that's what basically financed us into the into the racing cars and got us on the track. Tell me about London in the in the late sixties. We hear about the swinging sixties, and yeah, you know, I spent some time in London in the late nineties, and it was a hard place without having much money. I'm sure it was the same for you, but it was anywhere's was, a hard place. If yeah, you don't need money. yeah. Was it as much fun and as much excitement and as much the world opening its eyes as it's been described? Oh, absolutely. You know, you'd go down to Carnaby Street and get the bell bottoms and the check shirt and the big, you know, eight-inch wide tie and all that. Were you rolling that stuff? Ah, sort of. (laughs) I didn't go full spec, but um, just enough to get me into the parties and everything, you know. Um, And it was was, was exciting times. You know, Brian and I were sharing... um, flats with other Aussies and going to parties and, um, yeah, we, we, we had a bloody ball. And when people came up to you at that stage and they would say, oh, you know, as Aussies do, what are you doing in London? Were you, well, I'm coming here to race cars or what were you, what was your... 
No, we used to just say we were there holidaying and right. did they want to buy a minivan? <laughs> <laughs> and we'll buy it back from you. Exactly. So you started racing cars there. Tell me a little bit about the progression of, of your first drive in the UK and then, and then moving well, forward. Well, um, we bought a Formula Ford and then... So you had um, to buy your own racing car? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. I mean... Uh, and then uh, I then bought a Lotus 41, which I was going to, which I did. I did it all up, stripped it, had all the, it was a space frame. You did it yourself? No, I'm not that, I, I'm mechanically inept. I'm mechanically hopeless. Full a- stop. Absolutely. If I take something to part, I guarantee you, A, it won't get back put together, but if it did, there'd be about nine pieces left over. So you're not an Ikea man? No, oh no, Christ no. No, no, I literally... I probably got to the stage where I could just about change my gear ratios in the form of three car because you could take the back of the gearbox off okay. and then just put the different size gears in. But one day I did that and I put second where third should be or whatever. But <laughs> So like, obviously you could tell those that could do that what needed to happen to the car from inside the car. Well, I, I think that to a certain degree it's still the same. Um, you know, the, the days of Jack Brabham and those sort of people that used to build their own cars and, and were mechanically very aware of what was going on, they, they just don't exist, and it was sort of fading out when I got into it as well. And in particular, when I got into Formula One, you know, I mean, Patrick Head used to say to me, don't tell me what to do because you don't know. Tell me what the car's not doing that you want it to do and tell me what it's doing that you don't want it to do. Okay. And then we'd sit down and do what was now called a debrief, and, and he'd make all, all the changes based on what I told him, and nine times out of ten it worked. So what did you start racing first, the Formula Ford that you Formula bought? Formula Ford, yeah, and then we, then I bought this Lotus 41, which I uh, was Formula Libra, and I was going to use that to get to know the circuits, and um, I did it all up and you know, had it looking really good, and I was going to bring it back to Australia and sell it, and uh, I had a big shunt at Earl's Court because the in those days the pits were on the left-hand side going into paddock, not the right. Guy pulled out in front of me, and my inexperience as well, I probably panicked and jumped on the brakes and tried to steer around him, got on the grass, hit the fence, wrote the car off, broke my instep, um, and all that sort of carry on. Um, you right, mate? Oh, Anyone important? Oh, hang on. I can pause it. Hang on, mate. Hang on. More of the 1980 Formula One world champ in a moment. Next week on the Howie Games, we are going extreme, really extreme, need to do more of it, I think, with a true pioneer in the world of extreme sports, Robbie Madison. Robbie is a modern-day evil Knievel. He's done some truly crazy stuff on his motorcycle. World record jumps, canyon jumps, jumping the Tower Bridge in London. He surfed one of the world's gnarliest waves, Chopu, on his motorbike. Yep, on his motorbike. This is a man that risks everything to pursue his dreams. A spiritual man that believes he has seen what's on the other side. What was that life, out-of-body experience? Like, describe it to me. Just um, a viewing of my whole life at one in one in one presence, you know, like I was uh, coming out of it, kind of had a was able to see my whole life. And was there something that brought you back? <sighs> yeah, just all of a sudden, like I was, I was still existing, even though I was clinically dead, you know. Um, and so when I when I opened my eyes again, I was obviously back here in the now. But prior to that, it wasn't like it stopped for me. I was I was existing in a spiritual plane, kind of thing. So it wasn't like I, I had things didn't stop for me. I just wasn't in the physical form anymore. That's the fascinating Robbie Madison next week on the Howie Games. If you've got fears in your life and you want to overcome them, have a listen to Robbie. Now back to Alan. So you're talking about a big shunt. What type of safety is in play in Formula Ford or whatever racing you're getting into in the early 70s in the Oh, UK? not much. I mean, 
Are you going to wear fireproof overalls? Oh, yeah, yeah, fireproof overalls, not a bell helmet and um, yeah, safety belts and harness and all that sort of business, but there was no... Um, the Armco around the track? There, there, there was Armco. Well, some, some circuits I went to, there was no Armco. There was just like earth banks. Um, but, you know, you never really thought about it. I mean, I look back at even my old Formula One car now and I think, bloody hell, mm. you know. And, in fact, when Mark Webber came out to Eastern Creek, or Sydney Motorsport Park, as they call it now, um, a couple of years ago, he, he was demonstrating the Red Bull there and the guy that bought my... Um, Formula One, well, one of the Formula One, Williams, was there. And um, he, he said to Mark, would you like to have a drive? And Mark said, no way. I wouldn't hop in that thing. And, and you look at it now, you know, and you think, you know, there's no freeboard. All you had was a bit of fibreglass around you. That was to help the aerodynamics. It wasn't for safety. Um, and, you know, there was a lot of people being killed at that time. So we'll get to your first Formula One race in a minute, but how, how do you deal with that? Again, you did talk about it in your book and you're very matter-of-fact about it. Do you consider it at all when you know a bloke and you're having a beer with him on a Friday night and on a Saturday night and he's dead and on Tuesday you're at his funeral? Yeah, I mean, we, we, we sort of had this... It wasn't blasé. It was sort of like a fighter pilot mentality, you know, like, oh, poor old Bill's bought it, mm. you know, and you'd go to the funeral and commiserate with the relatives and, and, and then get on with it because you knew that could bloody well happen to you. And, you know, there's no point dwelling on the thing because it's not going to change anything. Um, so you, you, you that, that's what you did. Did you have to try and put it out of your mind, Jonesy, or...? No, I didn't really. It just sort of went out of my mind. I, I, you, you, I think you're that single-minded and selfish to a certain degree to get to where you want to go... Mm. Um, it doesn't allow you to either dwell on it or, or whatever. You talked about the fact before you got in a car that you thought that you'd be the equal or better of anyone there if you were given the same equipment. Did you have a feeling that because you were as good as what you thought you were that it wouldn't happen to you? I think every driver thinks that. I think every driver thinks it'll never happen to me because if, he, if they did, they wouldn't put their bum in the car. Um, you know, you, the thing that we all used to fear more than anything was mechanical failure or fire. Because something breaks on the car, you're in the lap of the gods. There's nothing to do with your skill, nothing to do with anything. Sheer bloody luck, you know. And obviously then if something does break and you hit the fence or whatever, you, you don't want it to burst into flames. So that were the things that we really sort of feared the most, I guess. But apart from that, um, the thought of, you know, going into a corner too deep, making a mistake and sliding off and hitting the fence because it was you, oh, no. <laughs> Never going to be you. No. And we see in um, various walks of life that... The ladies, AJ, seem to love the blokes that are prepared to go out there and risk everything hell or high water. Was that your experience, that you were pretty popular as a young Aussie racing car driver in that part of the world? Well, I don't think you even have to be Aussie. I just think right. you've just, <laughs> just got to be a racing driver. <laughs> right, right. OK, well, you've answered that. You've answered that. So how do you progress? How, how do you progress to get your first start in a Formula One race. So how do you get to that point and then who's it with and where is it? Well, you know, there's a certain amount of luck involved in everything in life and and I can honestly, and I'm very proud of this, I can honestly say I have never paid for a drive in my life, never. And I've been very fortunate to be at the right time, right place at the right time, put my bum in the right car, have, have the right result come about, have the right people see it. Mm. Um, and, um, and that's exactly what happened. You know, I, I was in Formula Three, uh, won some Formula 3 races both on the continent and England 
then went to Formula Atlantic and won the curtain raiser to the British Grand Prix. And I put it on pole and I did a time that would have actually put me on the back row of the grid of the Formula One race. I see. So, uh, and then the guy that owned the Formula Atlantic car, a guy called Harry Stiller, he eventually got me into Formula One and, and then... Because of what I did in Formula One, I got off at other drives. So your first race in Formula One? Um, I think it was the Daily Express something or other at Silverstone. It was a non-championship race. Right. But, you know, there, there was like most of, the, most of the boys were there and I finished seventh and I finished in front of my, uh, Mario Andretti and a few reasonable big names. And then we went over to Belgium and I qualified at only a couple of cars behind James because he was in the works, Hesketh. James Hunt? Yeah, well, you saw that um, film, you know, with Nicky Lauder. Yeah, Rush. Brilliant well, film. Well, that was a Hesketh that he was in. Um, and, um, and then at one stage, Lord Alexander Hesketh was saying, oh, I'm going to run a two-car team next year, AJ, and I want you to be in it. And I'm thinking, oh, how good's this? That never really eventuated. Um, and then Harry, the guy that was... Uh, instrumental in putting me the deal together to get me into the Hesketh he went to America because the English tax man was chasing him and um, perfect for car racing oh yeah perfect and um, and then about that time I think Rolf Stomlin had a big accident at Barcelona Muntajou Park and uh, went over the fence and killed a few people and injured himself and well, you talk about that in the book that, yeah. that five people yeah. in the crowd were killed yeah Gee, it's a different time, isn't it? Better than having five drivers killed. Uh, not to put too fine a point on it. <laughs> okay. okay. Um, I mean, that's what they go there to see anyway. Yeah, probably a good, not quite that up close. This. Yeah. Um, so, um, yeah, so Graham Hill rung me up and asked me if I'd like you de- to deputise for him, of which I, I said yes because I had nothing else on the go anyway. And then I, I drove the hill and I got a fifth at the old Nürburgring, the, the big one, uh, which I think was their best result. And they got some points. Tell, tell just this is it. Now people won't understand. I've been to the Nurburgring for the European Grand Prix when I used to work in that caper, and now it's your typical five six kilometre circuit. Yeah. The old Nurburgring, which someone drove me around part of, fascinated me. Explain to people where it was, how long it was, how dangerous it was. It was basically in the same place the new one is, except it was like about sixteen miles round. Um, so one laps. 20-odd kilometres. Oh, yeah. I mean, and, you know, the reason they eventually shut it down is because they simply just couldn't put up enough marshals in that in that distance to make sure everything was under control. And that's where Nicky Lauder had his big shunt. Um, and a bit of unbelievable circuit. Like, you know, it was just frightening. It, it, I think they call it the Green Devil or the Green something or other. Right. Um, so I, I drove the, the hill there and then... Uh, Were you there when Nicky Lauder had his shunt? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it was my teammate that came around the corner and hit him. He hit the curb and spun and was facing the wrong way and Brett Lunger, who was the other teammate for Surtees in those days, this mm. was 1976, um, came around and, and hit him. That's what, burst, that's what caused the fire. So there's famous stories about that, and obviously Nicky's pretty open talking about it. For those that have seen the movie Rush, he was horrifically burnt mm. and in all sorts of trouble, Nicky mm. Lauder. People, who helped him out of the car, et cetera, AJ? Well, most of the drivers. Um, I think um, Harold Bertle, I think um, Brett Lunger, um, a, a few of the guys that were not all that far behind him stopped and helped him out of the car. Because more times than not, they had better bloody fire um, protection than the marshals. So, again, do we just get to the end of the day and you find out that Nicky's 
in all sorts of trouble in hospital and, okay, well, that's unlucky for him. It's not going to happen to me and I'm ready to jump in the car tomorrow. Yeah, you just think, well, I hope he pulls through. I hope he's okay and that's it. Good night. It's like when um, Ronnie Peterson, I mean, I got on really well with Ronnie. He was probably, out of all the people, you know, one of the people I sort of got on with more or better than most others. And, and actually I was right beside him on the grid at Monza and I did a better start than him and got going. And um, Patrese went over a white line and then came back on and they rubbed wheels and Ronnie went into the fence and then we came round and then if you're in Formula One and you see a black plume of smoke and then there's red flags, you you know something pretty serious has happened. And so we all pulled up on the grid because the race was stopped and Frank came up and said, oh, Ronnie's had a fairly big shunt. Uh, I think he's done his legs in. And yeah, righto. So we waited for about 20 minutes and they restarted the race and we all got on with it. And then I went to bed that night and got up the next morning and was coming down the stairs and Frank said, Alan, have a quick word with you, the Ronnie died last night. And that really did shake me up because had he had a big shunt on the circuit and injured himself mm. severely, but we were all led to believe that he'd buggered his legs and that was about it. But apparently what happened was some bone chips got into his blood, um, into his veins or whatever and got into the heart and that's what killed him. <clears throat> I don't think... Um I'm not sure people understand how violent, until you see a car crash. I can recall being at the Montreal Grand Prix and I was out around the circuit helping a cameraman and a French guy by the name of Olivier Panis crashed and broke one or both of his legs. The reaction time from when he put a wheel off the track to when he was into that fence, I can still picture it clearly today how fast it happens. Oh, it happens in a split second. Split second. Do you know it's happening? Um, What... Well, you do, yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, as soon as you lose it, you think, shit. Um, what do you do then when you say shit? Oh, well, you just brace yourself and you take your hands off the steering wheel in case they flick back and break your thumbs or your fingers. But Robert Robert Kubica had a really big one at Montreal. I mean, the car disintegrated. Mm. But, you know, I mean, those IndyCar blokes have huge chunks as well. I mean, I just think they're raving idiots. Um, you think they are? Yeah. Well, they just go, it's rollerball. They go around in circles. An old mate that's running in second mm. um, hits the wall, comes back as a crowd, mm. you know, gearboxes and bloody wheels and tyres and wings and bits of bodywork, and you're lying in about eighth or ninth, and you get hit with all this debris. And you can't swerve to miss it because the rear engine cars are like a pendulum. Uh, you lose it then, and you go up and hit the wall. It's, it's, to my mind, it's just crazy racing. We'll get back to your journey in a minute. We've, we've got a little bit sidetracked, but that's a great thing yeah. about podcast AJ. It, you, you can just follow where the conversation goes. You mentioned Nicky Lauder. You mentioned earlier on James Hunt, who went on to win that championship after Nicky came back. Yes. The stories of James Hunt and the way he would be off track are legendary. I know he's a good mate of yours. Was it everything and more that he was described as, as Absolutely. the typical playboy racer? Oh, yeah. Was he? Yeah, he was a star. Look at the smile on your face. I'm just taking you back 40 years, I reckon. Yeah. Was he? Oh, yeah. A good fella? Yeah, ripper bloke. Um, you know, never tolerated fools. Um, you know, used to smoke like a chimney, used to have like the drink, um, used to love the women. Um, and he epitomised what most people in those days thought a Formula One racing driver should be. But, and I, I hasten to add they weren't because, you know, most of them were sort of either A, married or B, health fanatics or, or whatever. But James was the typical silk scarf, you know, um, face blackened out with the goggles and all that mm. sort of stuff. He was, uh, he was a legend. You told a story about 
um, if you could tell it again for me in person, I would love it about him being with you in a hotel room and telling you that you needed to sort out a young lady downstairs and send her in his direction. Well, we'd, we'd actually just gone to the opening of the brand new Nürburgring and they invited ex-world champions and, and people like that. And then after it was all over, Lufthansa put on the uh, catering and uh, we availed ourselves of a bit of that. <laughs> then there was a big do back at this really fancy hotel. And um, first of all, I went to James's room and um, we went in there and he said, hey, Big Al used to call me. Big Al. Big Al, he said, um, do you fancy a... a oh, he offered me some marijuana and I, and, and I honestly swear to God, yes, I've tried it and, and I've tried um, Coke. But I haven't tried heroin or anything like that. But I'll try most things once. You, you know. tried coke when you were racing cars? Uh, no, okay. no, no. I actually did it when I was a film extra at Monza when James Gardner made um, that film called Grand Prix. Right. But um, do you like it? Um, no, it didn't. Do, I'd rather get pissed to be honest with you. Um, <laughs> As I said at the start, it's a real old school book, and you're an old school fella. I like know, that. Um, it just. It doesn't, and be, I guess because I'm a non-smoker anyway. I mean, to have to have marijuana, you've got to be a smoker, I suppose. Right. I don't know. So James is offering you a joint. Yeah, which I took, and I had a couple of beers, and um, being absolutely not used to it, um, he said, "AJ, there's a waitress downstairs that I think I've made a mark with, and I've teed up to meet her outside." Um, I've told her to give you the nod, and you can let me know, and. I'll liaise with her outside. I said, yeah, yeah, right. But anyway, I suppose the old hoochie cooch got the better of me and I've gone downstairs and I didn't quite work out how to get downstairs without letting everybody know I was a bit ordinary. So, right. I, so I walked down backwards thinking they wouldn't, they wouldn't recognise me. Just a bit low key. So anyway, I'm at the bloody table and... Big smile on your face. Managing director of Mercedes-Benz Australia was at the table and... Because you know how much sense of humour the Germans have got. And he, and he kept saying, Alan, it's so very strange to know. And um, anyway, she's given me the nod and I've totally forgotten James at this stage and I've given her the nod back and I thought, I think I'm in with a bit of luck here. In the meantime, James is out in the car park waiting for her to come out and all of the directors, or the board of directors of Mercedes-Benz have turned up in their armoured um, mercs because... One was kidnapped not so not long before that. I see. And, and um, so since then, they all knock off at the same time. They all come out of the building at the same time. They all hop in their armoured cars at the same time and they all go off to their respective houses, you know, with armed bodyguards. Anyway, so they've all pulled up, you know, like a convoy. So here's this bloke bobbing up and down in amongst all the cars and they've thought, who's what's going on here? And... James is thinking, oh, I'll be, she'll be out in a minute, you know. <laughs> she'll be out in a minute. <laughs> and, of course, they've obviously yelled out, oi, or something like that. <laughs> He's legged it with them after him. <laughs> and they've done the tackle and pinned him down <laughs> and then found out it was James. <laughs> I like it. I like it a lot. So now I've got to focus a bit here. So things go okay in Formula One. You get in a car called a Shadow yep. and you have your first ever Grand Prix win. Yep. Special moment? Oh, absolutely. Um, uh, you know, it was unfortunate circumstances that I got, I got into the shadow. It was um, the guy that place I took I used to admire both as a person and as a driver, hell of a nice young Welsh guy, Tom Price. And he was decapitated at Kyle Army. His teammate, he went over oh. a brow of a hill and his teammate pulled up opposite the pits and... Uh, 
and some marshals run across the track to see what was wrong with him, but because it was a brow of the hill, Tom didn't see them and he collected this 19-year-old marshal and um, killed the two marshals instantly and one of the fire extinguishers decapitated old Tom. The fire extinguisher hit him yeah. in the head. So um, at that point, I wasn't doing anything because I didn't really want to do Formula One if I had to do it with certies. And so I had a phone call from Jackie Oliver to say, would you come and take Tom's place? And I had nothing going because I thought I might try Indy, uh, Indy racing. And so I, you're back in Australia at this point? I'm back in Australia and I tried it at Ontario Motor Speedway, which is not in Canada, it's in California, but it's a dead set replica of Indy and I hated it, I didn't like it. So I went back to Australia and I thought, bloody hell, what am I going to do now? Anyway, I got this phone call from Jackie and I said, mate, he's got me under contract which he's, um, which he's exercised. He said, I'll leave it to me. You know, he's a bit of a bush lawyer. I think we can organise it. So anyway, about a day later, he rang me back and he said, yep, get your bum on a plane, come over. And I met them all at a hotel at Heathrow, signed the deal, uh, signed the contract, went up to the Shadow Factory, which is in Northampton, had a fitting in the car, seat fitting. And then the next race was Long Beach and then um, drove from, for them from Long Beach onwards and uh, a guy called Tony Southgate came into the team and streamlined the car a little bit better and put it on a diet and made it a bit more competitive. And um, I raced it at Austria, but it was a bit of a heavy old thing and it was bit, pretty softly sprung. So it just so happened that the circumstances or the, at, at the Austrian Grand Prix suited it down to the ground and I was able to sort of come through and... Um, and beat Nicky Lauder, who was second. And being an Austrian, that didn't go over real well at all. So, but that was my first Grand Prix win. So was it on the podium and the national anthem and the flag? And No national anthem, no flag. Oh, no. <laughs> I don't think they expected an Aussie to win. <laughs> they weren't prepared musically no. or with the flag. No, a, a drunk played happy birthday on a trumpet. <laughs> a true um, story? Yep, absolutely, mate. Um, it's, you know, they, they didn't have the... I don't think they had the national anthem ready. Right. <laughs> but, but that's... I've always <laughs> said this, that... If you're a young guy in a reasonably uncompetitive car, which there's not too many of, like, like I, I guess if you're in a Hass or a Sauber or something in this day and age, if you get into sort of rainy conditions or adverse conditions, that's, that's a time to really show your mettle. Because mm. people, people realise, they look at you and they think, bloody hell, he's going well in that old shitbox. Um, so they keep an eye on you. And that's when, you know, whenever those circumstances used to arise, I used to really, you know, drive my bum off, hoping to be in front of cars that I shouldn't have been if it was dry conditions. Do you get a, at that point, Jonesy, do you get a cash prize for winning a Grand Prix? You've won your first Grand Prix, you're obviously contracted, and Mm. we might get to that with Williams, how much you're actually getting paid. But is there a cheque for winning a Grand Prix? Because I asked Webber this, and he said... In modern Formula One, no. He said you got bonuses built in, yeah, con- yeah, but yeah. Bernie per se doesn't hand over no. a winner's cheque. No. Bernie is, as you know, a bloody genius. Mm. No one ever knew how much anybody got. Um, but what I, I mean, I mean, people do it in a different way. I think Bernie gave PK um, an X amount of dollars and then he then sold off PK's overalls and helmet and he, he kept it, so... He, he sort of offset what he paid PK, okay. and PK was happy because he didn't have to go out selling selling himself. I've always just um, done a sign-on deal where you get X amount to drive the car, mm. and and then you would get either A, X amount per point, 
Um, but you would never get a percentage of the prize money because no one ever knew what the pr- bloody prize money was. So, uh, like with Frank... Frank Williams? Yeah. He would give me X amount of dollars. We'd so- like do a deal and uh, he would pay me X amount of dollars. And then I think I think it was a 1,000 US a point. Um, so if I won a Grand Prix, it was 9,000 US. Okay. But that was just really a bonus over and above my my wage, if you, for want of a better word. Can I ask you at this point about two things? Can I ask you at, at your at your best? I don't know. It's probably after your championship. Yeah, I don't know. Can you tell me what the most you were getting paid was in Formula One at the time? Do you yeah. mind me asking you that? Yeah, no, certainly not. Um, uh, it's too late for the tax man to grab me now. Anyway, <laughs> uh, at the end of nineteen eighty, mm-hmm. Frank thought I'd done a deal with him. For six hundred thousand pounds. Six hundred thousand pounds. Okay. And I said, no, I want a million dollars, because it all it also becomes a bit of a game with the other drivers. Of course you, it well, does. What's he getting paid? What's Schachter getting paid? What's Villeneuve getting paid? I want more than him. You know. Oh, I'm better than him. I'm the champ. So I get that. At that stage, um, Frank and I had a little bit of an argument because he said, no, you've already agreed, and I said, no, I haven't. So at that point, I let it be known that Alfa Romeo and Renault were flying over with this with their lawyers to talk to me about doing a deal and a big bag of cash. Yeah. Anyway, I signed on for one point one million US. One point one million US in nineteen eighty. Um, and then you know my thousand dollars a point and various other That's bits a and pieces. A lot of money in nineteen eighty. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it was. What happens to you as a person, or do you get treated differently all of a sudden when you become really rich? Oh, that's that's a, that's a lot of you money. Gain I don't know, a lot that's more. probably equivalent to twenty million bucks these days. I'm thinking. Yeah, well, you gain a lot of friends. Um, and do you have to keep an eye out for that. Oh, absolutely, mate. I tell you, I've been <laughs> I've been rorted and raped. You know. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, um, you know, Bob Jane sold me a team art for a dollar uh, when I came back, and then promptly had a big picture of me on the team art. In, in Melbourne here at that big roundabout near the old England Hotel. Oh, Elizabeth Street there, yeah. And it's my opinion that it probably helped him to go to other would-be franchises and say, Alan Jones is a franchisee. Uh, okay. You know. So, and of this, course, so this comes to you a bit when you get Well, that I didn't point. get anything out of it, and when he sold it, I didn't get anything out of it. But right. I think uh, I think really since then, Bob's proven himself to be a bit that way anyway, in my opinion. Um, and, you know, and you've got blokes coming up saying, you know, we'll do limited edition boats or we'll do this or we'll do that. Can you put your name to it? And, you know, all the promises and, mate, this is going to be good. And when you're a little bit naive and and money at that stage was coming in pretty freely and I wasn't doing too much except driving cars, Mm. um, a little bit of greed and a bit of big-headedness, you know, you open open yourself up a little bit to that sort of stuff. Were you living a lifestyle... That a man earning a million bucks a year should be living? Was it a? You're not a fancy bloke. I know you no. that well. I mean, I, I bought a house in California, but, but that was because I was used to stay with a guy called Bill Simpson when I went over there to race in Long Beach, and he'd say, "I oh, see that house down there." I'd say, "Yeah." He said, "I could have bought that for X amount, and it's just sold for Y amount." And I thought, "Bloody hell!" Well, one comes up. Let me know. Anyway, cut a long story short, he rang me up and he said, "There's a house next door to me. If you don't buy it, I will." And I was really getting sick of the English weather. And as you know, California weather is mm. damn sight better than London. My word. So uh, in hindsight, I should have bought on the east coast down in Miami because it would have only been a seven-hour flight instead of a 12-hour flight. But anyway, so I, I bought that house. Um, and then, of course, it enabled me to buy the farm and I bought a house in Kew. Um, you know, and I had some nice cars and I learned to fly. And 
So you didn't piss it up against a wall or anything? No, 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 no. I let other people do that for me. (laughs) (laughs) Before we get to 1980 and the Williams and and Frank and Patrick, etc., Bernie Eccleston. Tell me about Bernie Eccleston. Rip a little bloke. Um, He's as hard as nails, cunning like you wouldn't believe, clever, but his word is his bond. If he shakes your hand, that is it. Great little sense of humour. Uh, and a, a just just an operator. Like, I've never seen anybody like him. Um, I think I gave some examples in the book. He was in Brazil one day and they were all sitting around by the pool and some of the, the drivers were all betting each other how far they could swim underwater in this Olympic pool. And Bernie said, oh, you're all a bunch of bloody wuzzers. I could do two lengths underwater. <laughs> and they looked at Bernie and said, you are kidding. Like, they all just, you know. He said, I'll tell you what, I'll bet you 100 bucks each. They said, right, you've got our money. As soon as he had their money, he turned around to Herbie Blash and said, Herbie, go and get the flippers and the snorkel. <laughs> he was underwater, he, you know. He had the flippers and he was underwater. And took their money. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> so, AJ, being a man that knows Bernie well, if I jump on a plane to London, can you put in a few calls and we do a uh, Howie Games with Bernie Eccleston? Is that something you can sort out? He'd be the sort of bloke that would probably do it. Right. You know, he's. That, I mean, I remember, I don't know whether it's so much now, but... I used to have his mobile number and so did a lot of other people, mm. not just me. Um, and he'd take the call. No all dramas. Right, all right, well, we'll sort that out. We'll keep mm. an eye out for the upcoming mm. Howie games. Howie does Bernie. Yeah, well, yeah. I used to work for him yeah. um, in a very indirect way. I'm not saying that I uh, spent a great deal of time with the man, but, yeah, he was ruthless. There's no doubt about that. Okay, so Patrick Head, who was in Formula One in the time I was there, still with Williams, Frank Williams, they're starting up a relatively new Formula One team. Eventually you get in that car. Match made in heaven? Yeah, I think so. Um, at the end of the day, I thought I'd done a deal with Ferrari. and um, Did you? Well, I had a phone call from Montezemolo, who was Ferrari team manager in... Nine, Luca? Uh, yeah, in 1977, uh, when, I, when I was running pretty competitively in the shadow. Mm. And he said, would you be interested in driving Ferrari? Which is a bloody stupid question. <laughs> but um, I said, oh, possibly. And uh, <laughs> well, you can't pretty yeah, closely, yeah, I reckon, possibly. Anyway, he said, um, I want you to come over and meet Mr. Ferrari and uh, we'll Enzo, talk about Enzo it. Enzo Ferrari. Yeah. Wow. And he said, now, um, we, we've got to keep this secret because, you know, if we announce it, I want it to be like a big announcement. Of course, you know, I'm not that naive. I knew you were talking to about 3,000 other drivers. I was talking to Frank. I was talking to anybody who would listen to me because you've got to, you know, spread you your thing. And... Um, so anyway, I jumped on a plane, flew into Milan, and here's a, here's a bloke waiting at the arrivals in pale blue overalls in, with Ferrari written all over him with a great big sign, Alan Jones. <laughs> and I'm thinking, if this is the Italian way of keeping things secret, like, you know. Anyway, I went down to um, uh, Modena and they took me all through the factory and I went out to Ferrano and met Mr Ferrari. And What was he like? Well, Lucas said, this is what he'll ask you and this is what you should say. And he, was, he absolutely had it 100%. He just asked me everything that Lucas said he would. I waited outside his office, two big double doors. He was as white as a sheet. Uh-huh. And I thought, this bloke's dead. <laughs> Weekend of Bernie's. Absolutely. And um, anyway, sure enough, you know, why do you want to drive a Ferrari? Well, because I think you would give me my best chance of being world champion, blah, blah, blah. Uh, would you be prepared to live in Italy? And I said, listen, I'd live on the North Pole to drive for you. You know, did you um, so he said, all right, well, I must tell you, we're looking for a North American driver to help our sales in North America. We are trying to get Mr Andretti. But if Mr Andretti can't or won't, you're, you're our man. And I thought, oh, how good's this? So anyway, I went back to London and 
about a week later found out that Andretti had re-signed for Lotus. Beauty. And I thought, I'm a Ferrari driver. How? And then nothing, no phone calls, and I thought, this doesn't, this doesn't look good. So I waited and I finally rung them up and I said, when do you want me to come over? <laughs> and there was silence for about a minute and I thought, oh, hang on. Doesn't sound good. And they said, well, you know how we told you you wanted to be a North, we wanted a North American driver to help our sales? I said, yeah. Well, we have signed Mr Villeneuve. Ah, uh, okay. And I said, well, what, what about my contract? And they basically said, stick it where the sun doesn't shine, you know. So this is Jules Villeneuve, Jacques Villeneuve's father? Yeah. So I was on the phone at a thousand mile an hour to Frank saying, Frank, I've been giving a lot of thought to this and I'd love to drive for you. <laughs> right. He then said, we've got to keep this fairly secret. Um, <laughs> we'll meet on the side of the motorway and I'll take you up to meet Patrick and you have a look at the car. And I thought, oh, no, not another secret bloody thing, <laughs> you know. But, of course, he was talking to other drivers as well. Mm. Anyway, I went up and met Patrick, terribly impressed with him, very down-to-earth, very aggressive, very competitive uh, good little car, very neat, tidy. It wasn't a ground effects car, um, but still, it should have won a Grand Prix, that car. Um, we finished, I th- we were dicing with Reutemann for the lead at Long Beach, had electrical problems, and I finished second to Reutemann at Watkins Glen. Um, but Patrick was an absolute genius, and when you have a look at the amount of engineers that have come through underneath him, Adrian Newey, all these sort Sam of... Sam Michael. Sam, all these guys, you know, uh, um, the guy that did all the electric up and down suspension for Nigel Mansell that was responsible for Mercedes being dominant for the last three or four years. Uh, P- Paddy... Um, Paddy Lowe. Paddy Lowe. They've all come through Williams. And, um, you know, his strength was in the simplicity of his designs that worked. Uh, they, I know this... They were complicated but simple, you know. Yep. Um and we just got on well because we're all of similar age, you know. Um, Patrick was about same age as me, maybe a year older. Frank was a couple of years older. So we all were at the right place at the right time, all had the same dream and uh, were all prepared to make whatever sacrifice was necessary to get the job done. So you joined the team, what, 77? 78. 78, so mm-hmm. you drove 78, 79. 80, tell 81. Me, tell me about 1980. Well... After the Long Beach Grand Prix, Frank brought the FW07 out to Ontario Motor Speedway um, to do some testing because it was dry. And uh, so I hopped in the car and went out there and uh, I'd already had a fitting in it at the factory. Mm. So um, this this was my first lapse in in anger in the thing. This is the car you're going to drive in 1980? Yeah. Yep. And I did, I don't know, maybe half a dozen seven laps came back and I thought, bloody hell, I know why Andretti and Ronnie Peterson are winning all these races. This thing, you know, is just unbelievable. I mean, you could you could go so deep into the corners and break so late and get onto the accelerator so early. Um, it was just phenomenal. You know, it was just like five million steps up from the car I just hopped out of. Wow. Um, and that's how it proved to be, except, you know, for the first quarter, half of that season, we had a lot of unreliability. And that's when Frank really started to learn the importance of um, lifing. I mean, they got to the stage they'd life the steering wheel. You know, they'd change the steering wheel, change everything, um, working on the basis that prevention is better than cure. So, um, and, then, and then they became one of the more reliable teams. More of AJ in a moment. Last week on the Howie Games, a very, very popular episode, thanks to everyone that's had a listen, a man that has lived a life packed full of learning and experiences, the 1987 Wimbledon champion, Pat Cash. There was a scene in London, there was a, a fantastic party scene back then where, you know, you'd rock up to one of the nightclubs, there's a couple of big nightclubs and literally there'd be, you know, be George Michaels there, 
and you know I've I've talked I've talked about it you know but uh, you know it's kind of fun doing a line with George Michaels in the toilets you know what I mean it's mm. <laughs> and he's passed away now but bless him he was a ter- unbelievable guy a terrific guy but you know that's the sort of scene that it was that's Pat Cash last week on the Howie Games. In recent times, we've been talking about a personal Howie Games podcast. This is not for broadcast. This is where you can send us an email at thehowiegames at hotmail.com. That's H-O-W-I-E, thehowiegames at hotmail.com. And if there's someone in your life that you would like their story documented, I will sit with them one-on-one and we will do a personal podcast. Once again, if this is something that interests you, a family member, a relative, a grandpa, a grandma, a mum, a dad, etc., send us an email at thehowiegames at hotmail.com. And just a note so there's no confusion, these aren't for public consumption. These are for you as a personal memento of someone close to you. Alrighty, back to AJ. You go through 1980, as you say, you start to pick up points. Um, it comes down to, where was it? Was it? And it was you and you were competing with the Brazilian, was PK. it? Nelson PK. Mm. There's a famous much-talked-about incident in the race that you have to forgive Montreal. me, Montreal, when you went on to win the championship. Yeah, first he, corner. There was only a point. There was only like a point in it, and um, I was quickest in the first practice session, and maybe even the second. And then all of a sudden, PK came out, and went like about three quarters of a second quicker. Oh yeah. And everyone went, "What the bloody hell's happened here?" Because you just don't find three quarters of a second in those days. We all used to qualify within tenths, mm. and. Um, well, I thought, okay, so he he got on pole, and um, uh, and I and I qualified next to him on the front row, and as we took off, we rubbed wheels, and he went into the fence, and my engine cover came off, but I was able to continue. But unfortunately, they red flagged the bloody race. Very unwisely, the car that he qualified in, they didn't take that engine out and put a race engine in it and have it ready as a spare. They just literally left it. They just put it to one side. So it was just a quali-spec engine. And got his, and got his race car ready. Right. Now, far be it from me to say <laughs> that they were using, shall we say, not quite legal fuel in that car because it had a high detonation and all the rest of it. And in the race, they test – after the race, they test everything. They test all the fuel. They test everything. Mm-hmm. And that's why when they, they started that car – they tried to put the, the normal fuel in it and he got about 15 laps into the race and it detonated and, and, and blew itself up. So you go on and win the Grand Prix? I won the Grand Prix and won the championship. So tell me about that. You, you cross the line, AJ, you're a young bloke trying to emulate your dad for a while, you leave Australia, you survive <coughs> accidents, blokes have died around you, you've been in shit boxes. you get in a good car and you become... The Formula One world champion, that's mm. a dream come true. Well, it was. It was very emotional. I, I sort of half pie burst out crying in my helmet and I thought, oh, come on, pull yourself together. <laughs> you can't get on the bloody podium like, you know... Uh, you know like, yeah, that's not like, you. Like that's Bob Hawk. Uh, <laughs> so um, I... Uh, fortunately, I pulled it all together and Jackie Stewart was on the podium and Mansour OJ, who was um, owned TAG, uh, before it became TAG Hoyer, which mm. is called TAG, um, had a huge big party uh, back at the hotel and he had all these pictures around the wall that he'd had framed, non-glaring glass, how he'd done it and the time he did it. Oh, I from the day itself? Yeah, like ah. literally th- two hours later. Um, but the following weekend was uh, Watkins Glen, which was the last race of the season. And I had just done the deal with um, uh, Frank. That was when I did that $1.1 mm. $1 million deal. 
So luckily I, I went down to Watkins Glen and um, qualified about sixth or seventh, which was a fairly low for me. And I said, Frank, this engine's down on power seriously. He said, right, we'll change it. Um, and th- that's what Frank was so good at because, you know, his philosophy was I'm not paying you all this money mm. not to believe you. If you think it's down on power, AJ, we'll change it. Anyway, I was quickest in the morning warm-up, thank God. Did a, did a blinding start, was second into the first corner and the Americans have got this horrible habit of just putting cement down on any spilled oil. And um, I've hit that and skidded off and I thought I'd buggered my skirts because I was bouncing across all this rough terrain. Came back onto the circuit, just took it very gingerly uh, because if those skirts stick up and you go into a fast corner, you're off. Mm-hmm. And um, I think I rejoined in about 12th or 13th and just had an absolute ball and just passed everybody, with the exception of Giacomelli, who actually broke down. But apart from him, I passed everybody and, and, and went on and won the race. So um, from that point, it was uh, Mance gave us the Learjet to take us back to JFK to get the um, Concorde back home. How many? So did you celebrate knowing you? Did you celebrate by getting on the Terps? Did you really let your hair down? Oh, yeah, Absolutely. Right. I mean, I don't need much of an excuse at the best of times, no. but, um, you know, at the end of the day, I, I felt pretty ordinary, dusty, <laughs> and then I've, I've jumped in this bloody plane and flown home only to be uh, greeted with a surprise party at the house at home. And all I wanted to do was go to bed and die. But anyway, I didn't. And when did you reflect on, AJ, on, you know, you joke and laugh around, go and have a few beers, etc. When did you reflect on the fact that you were the Formula One world champion? I always look at it that there's not so much now, but then you're the heavyweight champion of the world brings a certain status. And I reckon the Formula One champion of the world, especially then, brought the same type well, of status. I, it's a very high position well, in sport. Well, you know, you say laugh and everything, but I, I, very, I used to drink very little. I really did. Um, my daily intake was perhaps a pint of beer. That was it, mm-hmm. if that. I never used to drink from about the Tuesday or the Wednesday before a Grand Prix. Mm-hmm. Um, I used to get into race mode. I became a totally different person when I walked out the front door of the house. Um, you know, I became aggressive, um, rude, whatever, just getting myself in, like a, in the boxing shape. Uh, and then on Sunday night, it was just like the monkey hopping off my back and I'd have a let go and have a few cold beers. Um, because I was a sufferer anyway. I think that people that don't drink a great deal, that are reasonably fit, they have a tendency to suffer a bit more rather than now I'm well practised. I can <laughs> sort of get right back into it again. But, um, you know, in those days I used to suffer for two or three days afterwards. So it used to be really good because it was almost like a self-leveller. So did it mean the world to you, though? Oh, absolutely. No question. No question. I mean, um, you know, when you go on a boat and travel to the other side of the world and you make sacrifices and you have a lot of hard knocks and ups and downs and you nearly do it and then you don't and you're in, you know, and then to finally sort of pull it all off is just the culmination of a, an absolute boyhood dream. So it, it just meant everything to me. And how was it received back in Australia? Because at this stage it was probably starting to get a run on the TV. I'm sure your performance had a massive impact on the way Australians follow the sport. Yeah, well, I, th- I hope so. I mean, I oh, think no Channel, so. Channel 9 started televising it and um, because I think it's fairly true to say that several years before that, you know, there might have been a small little column in a paper mm. um, that Joe Blow had won a Grand Prix or something. And it's a bloke you don't know. It's a European fella and you don't know yeah, too much about yeah. it. So unlike the Europeans who it's almost like a family thing, 
you know, granddad took his son, his son takes his son, they all go to the Grand Prix. They're like footy fans, you know, they've all got their favourite drivers, their favourite teams. Yeah. I mean, you've seen them on TV with all the banners and all that sort of carry on. Um, but, you know, it became more and more aware. And then, of course, hosting a round of the World Championship in Australia was fantastic. You know, in that time when you were a celebrity sportsman, which you were, is there people you met that blew your mind? Did you meet, like, really famous people? Well, I did, actually. I mean, you've, you've got to be a little bit careful talking this way because you get the odd guy out there, you go, oh, big-headed wanker. Well, no, you I'm know. asking you the question. Yeah, I know, but, you know, I'm, I met a lot of famous people, huge. You know, I mean, I remember... Um, I remember I was in Rio one night and I got a phone call and um, uh, somebody said, oh, I'm Omar Sharif's private secretary. He's having a party. He wants to know if he'd like to come round. And then I got an invitation to Stevie Balaceros was was having a, a party. And, and so you were getting these sort of invites mm. to go to these sort of parties and meet these people. And you'd go? No. No, more times than not, I didn't. Right. So I think, it, I don't know whether it was out of shyness or whether it was... I'm here to go motor racing. And you know what I told you about going out the front door and putting the mm. race face on? Well, that's how I used to go. Um, you know, I never used to go down by the pool because I was scared of getting sunburnt. I, um, you know, I was 100% there to race a car. There's a lot more that happened after you quit Formula One the first time you went back there, you raced touring cars, etc. But I guess for me, working with you on TV now, I, I used to stay up and watch you and Daryl Eastlake on the telly. And I loved it. I absolutely loved it. Was I never had the pleasure of meeting Daryl Eastlake. Um, was he as good a bloke as he seemed to come across on oh, the telly? Yeah. He, he, he was a character, Daryl. I mean, he was so such good fun to work with, you know. We'd, I mean, you'd get the buddy Barry Sheen, Daryl and myself, <laughs> you'd just be in fits of laughter all the time, you know. They were just um, unbelievable. But... Daryl, you know, that his, his sort of catchphrase was huge. Well, he was. <laughs> yeah. You know, he was just he was just a, a, a ripper bloke. Do you enjoy the TV side of things? You obviously did it with Nine for so long. You've done it with Ten now. You do F1s with Matty White and you do the, the F1, you know, et cetera. Do you enjoy that side of things and bringing your knowledge to people? I do because it keeps me abreast of what's going on and, and that's one of the reasons I don't mind being a steward for some of the Grand Prix because... A, I get to go to them. I get to see what's happening behind the scenes as a steward, some of the decisions that are made, um, you know, and uh, there's been a lot of talk lately that the the some of the things that have been made are, are too inconsistent, and I, and I agree with that. Um, but I don't know what you do about it. But, no, as I said before, I love anything to do with cars, and I've got to tell you, I'm, I am really looking forward to tonight's Grand Prix. Singapore Grand Prix tonight. Yeah. Um, you know, like Vettel on pole, Verstappen next to him. Mm. You know, like it's a recipe for disaster. It is. Um, so I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. Talking about those blokes, if, if you don't mind for five more minutes, I might just throw some names at you and just give yeah. me the first thoughts that pop into your head. Um, Nelson Piquet? Idiot. Well, not an idiot, but not my kind of bloke. Nicky Lauder? Terrific guy. Really nice guy. Bit cool to me... For a few years, he actually thought that I let James Hunt pass me 
because I was the guy that James Hunt passed to get that third position to get the point to, to beat Nicky. And Nicky knew that James and I were fairly good mates and he was convinced that uh, I pulled over and let him go through. You didn't? No. I mean, at that stage of my career, for me to have finished on the podium in mm. 76 in a 30s in front of James would have done my career no harm whatsoever. James just passed me. It was as simple as that. Um, but anyway, I get on really well with Nicky now. Alain Prost? Ripper little bloke. Fantastic. Really nice guy. Ayrton Senna? He, he was a really nice guy. I mean, I'm not just saying this, but, but Ayrton was a very polite guy. Um, I mean, he's the only other racing driver that's ever sent me a bloody Christmas card. Did he? Yeah. Uh, we still got it? No, unfortunately. Oh. Otherwise, it would have been on eBay anyway. <laughs> uh, but um, he, was, he was a really nice guy. A bit strange, you know. Um, found God in the tunnel at Monaco. We're not sure whether it was halfway through or... But, um, <laughs> Uh, so a bit strange in that area, but Brazilians are a bit strange in that sort of that area. Uh, Daniel Ricardo, lovely, lovely kid, really nice, lovely family. His father Joe, um, you know, they've just brought him up really well. They're real enthusiasts. Joe races cars. Um, they just love motorsport. Will he win a world championship? Well, I think if he if he if he was in a Merck or a Ferrari, yes. I mean, he just. I mean, the, there's nothing wrong with the chassis. It's a great chassis, and Adrian Newey, as usual, mm. has given him a great car. He just needs more horsepower. That's all. And you know, there's an old saying in motorsport: there's no substitute for horsepower. Michael Schumacher. Well, I always thought Michael was um, a bit arrogant, to be honest with you. Um, I, you know, it sort of went with the territory a little bit, but you can't deny what he did. Seven times world champion. No, I don't think anyone will ever do that. Mind you, I said that about Fangio's five times world championship. But I, I, for Michael to win seven world championships in that era, that would have been more difficult than Fangio's five. Um, yeah. So you've got to give it to him. I mean, the, the guy was a genius behind the wheel. Fernando Alonso. Nice guy. Yeah, really nice guy. We're, I reckon we're diametrically opposed on this one. Lewis Hamilton. Don't like him. And this is where you and I differ because I love Showtime. What yeah. don't you like about him? Well, I, I just think he's an, he doesn't get on with any of the other drivers. You see him on the parade lap. He's standing on the all away from them. He doesn't sort of talk to them. He, he tweets and carries on while, while, while things are going on. <laughs> he tweets and carries on. Um, <laughs> you know, I just, I just don't, you know, and he, he comes on with all this, I want to thank the fans, you're all lovely and all. He's just a, I think he's false. I don't like him. Kimmy? Well, well I don't know what you say about Kimmy. He doesn't talk <laughs> oh enough God. to form an opinion. <laughs> I couldn't agree more, AJ. Okay, of everyone you've seen in racing, if there's one bloke, I know it's hard with conditions and cars, etc. But if there's one bloke that's driving for your life to win a race, who are you putting in the car? It's a hard question. It is very hard. There's, you know, I'd prefer to boil it down to about three or four. But yep. you know, I still think Alonso is a really good race driver. Really? Yeah, I think you put him in a, you know, the, the guy. I mean, have everyone you've seen and raced against Fernando Alonso? Oh, oh I don't know about everyone I've raced. Um, I'm talking in your time oh. in Formula One. I don't mean now. I mean overall. Um, well, do you know, he was a strange dude as well. Very strange piece of work. But <laughs> a very, very good driver was Nigel Mansell. Nigel Mansell. Mm. I mean, if you look up Whinging Bob in the Bible, there's a picture <laughs> of Nigel. But, but, you, but a really good racing driver. To finish, AJ, you've obviously lived quite a life and you've got a beautiful wife and beautiful kids. How many kids you got? 
To, to Amanda? No, full stop. Oh, five. Five. Mm-hmm. Okay. So how do you reflect on the whole journey that you've had with a smile on your face? Absolutely, and I wouldn't change a thing. Wouldn't change. You know, like there's certain things you'd you'd fine tune, and certain things you'd probably change around a little bit. I probably wouldn't put as much faith in some of the people that I have in the past. But you know, you know, I'll probably go off and do something stupid next week or next month anyway. Something, someone will present something to me, and the greed factor will come out, and I'll say, oh yeah, put me down for a bit of that or whatever, and then I'll think, oh, he got me again. Um, but no, overall, as I said earlier on in this podcast. Mm. Um, I think if you're laying on your deathbed and you've ticked off most of the boxes, um, I've had a very fortunate life. You know, I've travelled the world, met a lot of interesting people, um, done a lot of things that a lot of other people will never do. I, I, I don't have any complaints. And when you're world champion, what do you end up with? A trophy, a cup? What do you get? Look, it's a big plaque. It's a big gold plaque thing. So where's that 1980 plaque now? It's actually, um, if you have a look on the set of Channel 10 when they broadcast a Grand Prix, right. it's on the set. So I'll see it tonight. If we manage well, to freight brought it, it down, down from to Sydney, Melbourne. Yeah, right. up, down, down to Melbourne, yeah. Um, and also my uh, Sport Hall of Fame medals I gave them to 10. No, I didn't give them to 10, but just to put on the, uh, on, on the set. AJ? Because, you know, I'm a believer in... They're better off for people to see them yeah. or to be seen rather than be... Um, I mean, you know, like Nicky used to give his trophies away to the bloke that washed his car yeah. in, in lieu of paying him. <laughs> right, right. AJ, the book, How Alan Jones Climbed to the Top of Formula One, as I said at the start, it's one of the most honest, entertaining sports book I've ever read and people are going to hear that in this chat, mate. Um, it's a pleasure to work with you. Um, I've got enormous respect for you, mate, and I really appreciate you sitting down having a chat with the Howie Games. I hope it wasn't too onerous for you. No, mate, it was good. No problems at all. Spot on, mate. Uh, Alan Jones, I told you, I told you, he says it exactly how he sees it. Thanks to Alan for his time. Once again, check out his book, AJ, How Alan Jones Climbed to the Top of Formula One. It is a very, very interesting read. And thanks to AJ, of course, for all his wonderful stories. What a legend. A lot of people actually ask me about the music on the show. So if you're one of those people, just Google Billy Mystic. He runs a surf camp in Jamaica and he's one very, very cool cat. To our producer, MJ, well done, especially considering he now gets up at 4am to produce the biggest morning radio show in Melbourne, the hot breakfast on Triple M. He's holding up well. You guys rock. Until next Thursday, peace and love. And we can do it if we try, try, try. If we try, try, try. If we try, try, try. Listener.